Please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I would like to speak to you for a few minutes this morning about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I had intended and had studied this week on the glory of Christ from every angle. And the further I went, and it became quite a lengthy study, this passage, which has always been a very pleasant passage to me, became the focal point of what I'd like to say to you today and what I would like to give you from the Word of God. We just sang that the Lord Jesus Christ is ineffably sublime. Sublime is very, very beautiful. Ineffably is an adjective describing that sublime, meaning that it cannot be properly spoken or described. And so we labor with ears and mouth to properly lift up the Lord Jesus Christ to where He belongs. But I hope that God, by His Spirit, will make up the great gulf that exists between our ability and Jesus Christ's reality. This is a perfect passage for a new year, and it is a perfect passage to come to the Lord's table. I want to read to you the verses from 9 to 23. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 9 through 23. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Amen. Amen and amen. amen. This is the word of the Lord. This conveys mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that no man can know but by the revelation of God himself. And thank you, Lord, for putting these things into the print of our own English language. I hope that you like certain clauses in this passage and they delight your soul. If your soul finds no delight in this passage, it is not the shortcoming of the word of God. It is the dullness and coldness of your foolish and or wicked heart. These things are too good. And it was all said that in all things he might have the preeminence. We want to lift up our eminence. And our eminence is no Pope of Rome. Our eminence is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to lift him as highly as we can and delight in him and rejoice in such a Savior and think upon the death of his flesh for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our souls that we can be presented unblameable and unreprovable in his sight and then come to his table to do him honor in the way that he has asked us to do him honor. He is ineffably sublime. So I shall fail. But my God will never fail. And if you will trust in Him for your education and reminders this morning, then we shall all succeed by the grace of God. Our brother Paul and our King James translators liked long sentences. And that is okay with me. Because I like to slow down and take it clause by clause anyway, which we shall not do at length today. But we shall do our best. The first sentence runs from verse 9 through 17. It's nine verses long. And it has three parts. The first three parts are practical growth in godliness. 9, 10, and 11. Very clearly distinguished from that which follows. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are the second third of the first long sentence, and that is our positional salvation in Jesus Christ. And then, verses 15, 16, and 17 describes that Lord Jesus Christ in His person. And so does 18 and 19, after that first sentence is over. And then we return to our salvation In verses 20 
through 22 and our reconciliation to God, and we conclude with the evidence or proof of our salvation, which is in verse 23. Let us quickly consider these things and then come to the table of the Lord. I hope you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I hope He is your all in all. No mortal can with Him compare among the sons of men. And those in the heavenly train sing His praises because they know He's their Lord. Our brother Paul was the perfect, near-perfect minister. And this is his desire. This is his prayer. His prayer starts in the first three verses about what he wanted to have accomplished in the lives of the Colossian saints. So look at these three verses again. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. What, Paul, is your great desire for these saints? And to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How, Paul, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. What a petition for the year 2009 for our own souls. And the eternal God is not limited by these words to the Colossian saints back in 60 A.D. These words are from God to us because this is God's desire. Saul of Tarsus, without the grace of the Spirit of God in his heart, thought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and many things contrary to the churches of Jesus Christ. But look at the change in him and his desire for these saints, which was wrought by God, which never changes. The Sauls and Pauls can come and go, but our Lord never changes. And so this is his desire for us. So when we see these words, we should delight in them and humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, give me such a blessing. Give me such a blessing. Verse 9, filled. Not, we, this is not taste and see that the Lord is good. This is be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We don't want to limit our thinking about wisdom and understanding to the book of Proverbs. We want our knowledge of wisdom and understanding to extend as broad as the Bible is. And so it says spiritual understanding. We want to understand the things of the kingdom of heaven. We want to understand the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, of justification, of redemption, of righteousness, of sanctification, of glorification. We want to know God's will in every part of our lives and in His worship, and how to bring glory to His name by the way we think, speak, and act. This is the prayer of a great apostle for the Gentiles in the city of Colossae. And it is the Lord's desire for us. Is it the prayer of your heart to have verse 9 fulfilled in your life? To be filled with the knowledge of His will. To know without a doubt, because that's all that's there, what is the will of God. And to be filled with wisdom and spiritual understanding. To know the things of Christ. 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and to delight in them. This is more than just factual knowledge. This is like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, that I might know Him. Right. The power of His resurrection and the suffering of His death. We want to know the will of God. Verse 10, why? The Bible is a very sensible book. It's written for children. We, the children of God. Why do we need to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding? That we, I'm going to change that word, ye, so that you'll understand that it's for you, that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Three reasons why we want to be filled with the knowledge of His will. So that we might please the Lord in all things and be fruitful in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Those are wonderful things. Is that your desire for this year? Though I have stressed the reading of God's Word, it is not the mechanical turning of pages and decoding of English characters in order to come up with sentences that is important. This is what's important, that we grow in the knowledge of His will until we are filled with knowing what His will is for us and what spiritual understanding is, so that we do everything that is pleasing to Him. And we're fruitful in every good work. Have you been a fruitful tree during 2008? Will you be a fruitful tree in 2009? And increasing in the knowledge of God. Don't you want to know more about your Father? It is as if it were that you are in His palace. The palace of God our Father. And on a beautiful coffee table lies an autobiography of our Father. And here we have it. It's the Word of God. It tells us about Him. And we can learn it. We can know about God, our Father. And this is the prayer. We want to be filled with the knowledge of His will in verse 9, so that we would walk worthy of our God. He has called us to be His children, and we want to walk worthy of that name. We want to live, speak, and think like the children of God, so that we are fruitful in every good work. Every good work that you have not accomplished so far in your life. We want that in the year 2009. We do not want to admit that there is anything beyond the power of God. And so we come to the 11th verse, which tells us how we can achieve verses 9 and 10. Giving thanks, no, verse 11, strengthened. Because when you read verses 9 and 10, you know that you don't have sufficient strength. You are not strong enough to do 9 and 10. So we have verse 11, strengthened with all might. I like words like that. Those are powerful words. Those are masculine words. Those are effectual words. Strengthened with all might. Whose might? According to His glorious power. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. The capstone of this great Christian desire for the saints at Colossae was all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. So that when bad things happen in the year 2009, you can be patient 
which means to cheerfully endure them. And you can be long-suffering, that means suffering for a long time, with joyfulness. That's the goal, and that's the strength that we can have from the Lord. That's the greatest perfection of a Christian, is when bad things happen, he is cheerful in enduring them, and he is long-suffering with joyfulness. Does the Bible tell us that that is perfection? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, tell us that enduring affliction, tribulation, and difficulties is the capstone of a Christian's perfection. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5, teaches the same thing. And so at the end of this list of what Paul desired for the saints at Colossae, he says, patience, all patience, all patience, and long-suffering with joyfulness. We do not know what this year shall bring. I tremble at what it could bring. The clouds on the horizon do not look good. But the sun that can drive away clouds looks better to me. And it's the God of heaven. But no matter what He brings, will we endure it cheerfully? Will we suffer for a long time with joyfulness. Right. I don't know. I can't I don't think I can do that. That's why we have these three verses. This is why we want to read this, we want to pray this, and we want to beg God for this. Amen. Because he can do it through the power of the Holy Ghost. He will not leave us comfortless. He has not exposed us to what this world can throw at us. In the year 2009, without divine strength, we have the might of God. It's not ours. It's according to His glorious power. I love to read in the book of Judges, there are four chapters there about one of our brothers named Samson. And it says from time to time that the Spirit of God would move him in the camp. Oh, yes. When the Spirit of God moves a mere mortal... That mere mortal can be locked in a city of the Philistines that had a massive gate and entrance. And he would come to it and find it locked and rip that thing up out of the ground and the post that carried it. Put it on his shoulder, carry it to the top of a hill and leave it there. Right. He could take the jawbone of an ass and slay a thousand military men. Because there's no boot camp that can compete with the power of the Holy Ghost. And there's no financial planning or economic wisdom that can save us like the power of the Holy Ghost. So, this is our prayer. I hope you love those three verses. It's one sentence, and this is only a third of the sentence, and it's going to get better. He starts with the least as he works to the most. I want those three verses, and I want them for you. If I didn't want them for you, I'm no minister of Jesus Christ. I hope you want them for your brethren, and I hope you want them for your families, and I hope you want them for yourself. Do you love these clauses and phrases in these three verses? Delight in them and pray them. Tell God this is what you want. He'll give you the petition you desire, because you know it's His will. It's written in His book. Okay. 
That was the apostle's desire for the saints at Colossae. Now he has some thanksgiving for the saints at the saints at Colossae, and they're found in the next three verses. 12, 13, and 14. Giving thanks. See, he's, he's, he, he has expressed his petition. He has stated his desire. Now he gives thanks. He gives thanks for something. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Wow, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Light is another word for glory, and glory is another word for heaven. This is heaven. If you study the word glory, which I have done this past week extensively, and every occurrence of it in, the, in our King James Bible, in all of its forms, it's often represented by light. And this light is heaven itself because it is full of light. There is no night there. So it's called light. And that's where our inheritance will be realized. There's where the riches of God will be put into our possession. But God has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. There are already men there. The spirits of just men made perfect. That's what a saint is. The Old Testament saints are already there. If you're reading in the book of Genesis to start off the year 2009, have you read about men like Seth to replace Abel? How about Abel himself? Do you know where Abel is right now? He's a saint in light. His spirit has been made perfect in heaven, and soon his body will be resurrected from the ground, which received it after Cain, his brother, killed him for religious envy. And it'll be joined together. But where is Abel? He's in heaven. And Enoch and Seth and Enos and Abraham and Noah, praise the Lord, they're in heaven. And God has made you Gentiles. I speak to you and to me here in this assembly. God has made you Gentiles meet to be partakers of His inheritance of the saints in light. We have a place with them in heaven. We're going to mingle with Abraham and Noah. We're going to mingle with Abel and Seth. Thank you, blessed God. That's why Paul said, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. The word meet means fit or suitable or agreeable. Like Eve was made a help, fit or suitable or agreeable for Adam. And we've been made fit or suitable or agreeable for heaven by the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Who tells us that in verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We have been vitally taken from one kingdom and placed in another. The word used to describe that movement is called translation. If you translate words from one language to another, the words do nothing themselves. It is a power outside and above them that does all the work. If you are talking about translation of moving one a, a, an object from one place to another, like Enoch was translated that he should not see death and he was not found because he'd been translated. God moved his body. God took him. We've been translated, wrested out of the kingdom and palace of the devil and put in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's changed our nature. Satan does not any longer have 
reign over us. We've been made free by the Lord Jesus Christ and His power, and we can obey the Lord Jesus Christ and live worthy of His kingdom if we choose to do so. God has done this, and this was a step that was necessary to make us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Without this change, we're not fit for heaven. Without this change, we wouldn't want to be in heaven. Without this change, we'd still be under the dominion of the works of the devil. Verse 14, in whom? That is, the dear son that verse 13 ends with. Verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. These are economic terms, brethren. If you want to worry about the economy, or if you want to study the economy, let's study the economy of salvation. Redemption is a financial economic term. We have been purchased. A ransom has been paid. A price was paid in order to buy the forgiveness of our sins. And what was that purchase price? That redemption price? Is it gold and silver received by tradition from the the vain religion of Jewish fathers? No. No. It is the precious blood of Christ. This dear son died for us. And we are about to have that dear son lifted so high, it's hard to imagine that he ever died. But he humbled himself to the death of the cross for you and me. And that's the glory of salvation. That's the glory of the gospel. He is so high, but he humbled himself so low. For you and for me. In whom we have redemption. You've been bought. An exchange has been made. And the exchange is not with the devil. You know, there are some Christians, and there are actually quite a few of them, that think that God bought us back from the devil. God had to buy us back from himself. It was God's holy justice that had its claim against us. The devil's just a puppet of his. He bought us back from Himself so that He can present us unreprovable and unblameable and holy in His sight, as we're going to read in just a few verses, and which we've already read. In whom we have redemption through His blood. What does that mean, Paul? Even the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been pardoned. We have been ransomed. We have been bought back. We have been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins have been blotted out. We have been acquitted at the tribunal of heaven. That is the second third of one sentence. The first three verses were the growth and practical godliness that we all should desire. The second third or the verses 4, 5, and 6 of this long sentence, describes our position in Christ Jesus. Redeemed, forgiven, translated in the kingdom of His dear Son. Made meet. We are fully fit. We are fully fit, suitable, agreeable, ready to be in heaven. Positionally, legally, and vitally. Only one thing's left. The redemption of our bodies. And it's coming soon. Coming soon to a world near you. The redemption of your body. Romans chapter 8. And we patiently wait for it. The whole creation's groaning for that great day. 
So we come to the last third. Having mentioned his dear son, let's learn a little bit about that dear son. Verses 15, 16, and 17, and then we'll get a period. Who is the image of the invisible God? God is invisible. He is an invisible spirit. Do you want to see God? Then learn all you can about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not a mere image. He is the express image of God, according to Hebrews 1.3. When Moses said, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34... Lord, if you want me to go and represent you and lead these people, show me your glory. No man can see my glory. Show me your glory. I won't go. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to hide you in a cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you because you can't bear my glory. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to lift my hand briefly. I'm going to show you my backsides because that's all you can handle. Right. I don't know if you like this kind of stuff from the Bible or not. Maybe this, maybe this kind of stuff bores you. No. I know one thing. When it says that Moses went out of the tabernacle where he was talking with God and Joshua, the young man, stayed behind because he didn't want to leave, I hope I know what that means. I hope I know that I have that in my heart, that I want to be left behind. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by and show you my backsides. God showed the backsides of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 in three verses. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord and described his mercy toward his saints. And he described his fury and judgment against his enemies. And that is the glory of God that we're able to bear. And we can see that all in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is waiting until his enemies be his footstool. And he is the most loving and forgiving and commiserating and empathetic and sympathetic and loving Savior and High Priest the earth has ever imagined at once. John the Baptist would say, and John the Apostle would say, or John the Apostle would say, and we have received of his fullness and grace for grace in John chapter 1. You cannot see God and you never will see God directly. He is an invisible spirit. He fills heaven and earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ embodies everything that is God because Jesus Christ is God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Look at holding your hand here because this is our text. Look at John chapter 1 because it's too good and too important as a cross-reference to just refer to it. John chapter 1. Who is the image of the invisible God. If something is invisible, then there's no image. You can't see it. But He is the image of the invisible God. And as as I've already quoted from Hebrews 1.3, He is the express image. He is a very clear, powerful, detailed image of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ. A man that you could embrace. A man that men did embrace. And though his body be in heaven on his eternal throne, 
by his spirit, he's in this assembly. And we love you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. This is the incarnation of when God the Word became a man, the man, Christ Jesus. And the Word, God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Look at what's in parentheses. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What Moses got to see a little bit of, we got to see a whole lot more of in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to talk about mercy? All God did was declare to Moses, God is merciful, forgiving sins and trespasses. You want to hear Jesus? Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go and sin no more. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Full of grace and truth. Verse 15. John bare witness of them and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received. And grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He brought grace and truth to us by Himself and through the Gospel. Verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. God appeared to Moses with a hand over Moses, removed briefly, hidden a cleft of the rock, and God only showing his backsides, and it showed some of his glory. And what was that glory? It was a verbal declaration of the mercy of God in the forgiveness of sins. How do we have it presented to us? Declared by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his character, by his life, by his conduct, by all that he's done. It is the express image of all that makes God God in the highest sense. Full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have all we received. He is full of mercy. He is full of forgiveness. He is full of compassion. And of that we have received as the children of God. Because he was sent to be our Savior. That is what you'll see in heaven. You will see the man Christ Jesus. And in him will be embodied all the perfections of God. Just as they were when he was on earth. Though in a state of humiliation. Back to Colossians who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Is the Lord Jesus Christ a creature? In His humanity, He most definitely is. How many times does the Bible say, He was made of a woman, made under the law, made a little lower than the angels, made in the likeness of men. But He's the firstborn of them all. Because though a creature in his humanity, he is the creator in his divinity. And he's both at once. He's the firstborn. The word firstborn, when it's used like this in the Bible, is not talking about birth order. It's talking about preeminence. Because the firstborn was to always have the preeminence 
in the Jewish system especially, and Jesus was the firstborn of every creature because he's, of all creatures, the man Christ Jesus is high and over all of them. And in his divinity, he is the creator of them all. Now that makes you the firstborn in both respects. If you ever want a passage to go to, to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is fully Jehovah, one of the greatest places in the Bible to go is Colossians 1 and 2. There is nothing in these words to demote the Lord Jesus Christ. There is everything to exalt Him. But we remember that He is of two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. And they are separated in the Bible because there are things said of one that cannot be true of the other. And we remember that and thus we rightly divide the word of truth by the grace of God. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He is far above them all. Because it goes on now to describe him and his divine nature as being their creator. In verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Those are the highest things we know of. The kings of this earth. The presidents of this earth. It's the highest thing we know of on earth. Whether it's things visible that we can see with our eyes or invisible things that float through the universe like spirits whether it's thrones and powers in heaven or thrones and powers on earth, He's created them all. So when you really want to exalt a Creator, you pick the greatest things He created. This includes Satan. This includes Michael. Gabriel. The angelic host. The prince of Persia. The prince of Grecia. The prince of the United States. All things were created by Him. And for him. On the way to our assembly this morning, I asked my wife, I said, what's your favorite phrase in that little sentence of Colossians 1, 9 through 17? And she said, and for him. Created by him and for him. You like that? And he is before all things. Right. He is before all things. Right. Do you like? Did we just read in John chapter 1 who is in the bosom of the Father? Right. Because He's everywhere all the time? Listen to these words. I'm just In John chapter 3 and verse 13... This is one of the little differences with modern versions. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Those words are missing. All the modern versions of the Bible. love my King James Bible. Which is in heaven. Nicodemus, no man has come down from heaven, but the Son of Man came down from heaven, and I'm in heaven too. Are you a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Wasn't I to be called Emmanuel, God with us? Doesn't God fill heaven and earth according to your own scriptures of Jeremiah? And so we have here, He is before all things. It's not He was before all things, He is. That's why we argue verb tenses. He is before all things because He is I am. 
I am is a present tense verb describing the existence of God, past, present, and future. Before Abraham was, I am. He said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The present tense verbs describing the great God. And here it is spoken of Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Do you want to know what holds everything together? The molecules that make up your body? What holds your liver together? What holds your lungs together? What holds your prostate, men? Do you know what holds it all and by which it consists? It's the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the Creator God. He spoke things into existence, and every day He wills them to consist and stay together. And if He ever withdraws His will, your lungs, your liver, your prostate will fail. And if He can do that with our bodies, and He does that with our economy, by Him all things consist. He is able to take care of us no matter what happens to this economy in the next year. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Aren't those wonderful expressions? This is our Savior. We are about to remember His death. He, this one that we're describing, humbled Himself to be abused on the cross of Calvary by the Romans at the instigation of the Jews for the redemption of our transgressions. What a Savior! But I'll tell you, He's not hanging on a crucifix. And I'm so glad I know the truth that I could stand in a hospital, a couple hospital rooms recently, and see that little lady, long-haired lady hanging on a cross in a crucifix, and give it no attention and know that it's just a foolish, wicked, abominable icon of the Roman Catholic Church. And know that my Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven, and every creature would fall at His feet once He stood up from His throne. He's glorious in every way. And by Him all things consist. You need, not, you need not fear anything. Right. He keeps automobiles together. Right. And only lets them fall apart as much as He chooses. By the word of His power. And He is the head of the body. The church. He is the head of our church. The head is the glorious part of any body. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art the head of gold, because he was the king of kings. He was going to be greater than the kings that were going to descend from him with the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. He is the head of the body, the church. The head is what directs all the other parts. He is the, he's the director. He's the president. He's the king. He's the prime minister. He's everything you want to think of, but when it refers to the church as a body, he's the head. Because it's your head. Listen, cut my hand off. Big deal. You know, I'll operate my computer with one of those little $39 voice-actuated keyboards. Cut it off. I don't write anymore. You say, well, what about the mouse? I'll say mouse. And my voice-actuator will move the, the, the cursor. Don't worry about it. Cut my hand off. I'm okay. But don't take this off. Because if you take this off, I'm not going to do anything because this is what's important to your body and to mine. And he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. He's the head of it. We do not admit any other head. It is no head on earth, nor any other head in heaven, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the beginning? All things come from him. He starts all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. 
He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first resurrected man to have a glorified body in heaven. And he's the firstborn. He's going to get all the preeminence in heaven. He's the first fruits. But we're going to follow him. And we're going to be with him in heaven with glorified bodies. That in all things he might have the preeminence. God has arranged all these things that were just spoken of about the Lord Jesus Christ so that he gets all the preeminence. That means he is superior. He is of the highest rank. There is no compared, none to be compared to him. He has no peer. That he might have the preeminence in all things. He's the first that's resurrected. We shall be resurrected by his power. He raised up himself by his own power. What do you, how do you want to measure him? We're creatures. He's the creator. We are, we, we live in time. He is before all things. He is the beginning. We just happen to be something in the process of time. He's the source of anything we have and anything we'll accomplish. But in all things, he might have the preeminence. There's nothing left out. He's done it all by the obedience of one. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. It pleased God that in Jesus of Nazareth all fullness would dwell. All the fullness of what? How about the fullness of the Godhead? 2.9, same book. The fullness of the Godhead. All fullness. It pleased the Father that Jesus of Nazareth would have all fullness dwelling in him. What other fullness? How about full of grace and truth? Didn't we already read that in John chapter 1? That's why I wanted that text for you to know what fullness was in him. It pleased the Father that everything that God embodies in the way of grace, truth, and Godhead, plus everything else, he, but ye, but of God are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and redemption and sanctification. In him should all fullness dwell. For it pleased the Father. What a perfect Savior, what a perfect Lord, what a perfect King, what a perfect High Priest. He's perfect in every respect. Right. What did He do for us? And having made peace through the blood of His cross, God, by Him, reconciled all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Listen, brethren, the family of God, the household, the family of God, the household of faith in a broader sense than some it may be used, family of God has members in heaven, Abel, Seth, Enos, Noah, Abraham, and so forth. David has things in heaven, members in heaven and members on earth, you and me. And God, through Jesus Christ, by the blood of his cross, has made peace for all of them and reconciled all of them unto himself. Whether they be things up there or things down here, been reconciled. This is not talking about the wicked angels. They haven't been reconciled. This is not talking about wicked men. They haven't been reconciled. It's talking about all of God's elect, without the exception of one, has been reconciled to God. Whether they're the ones up there, the ones down here, even the ones up there, needed the Savior, Jesus Christ. But through the forbearance of God for the redemption of sins that were past, they were able to enter into heaven based on the covenant that God had with Jesus Christ, that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would come and pay for their sins, even though they were already in heaven. He reconciled all things to himself legally with the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of that cross. And we shortly shall think upon the blood of that cross. Verse 21, and you, you Colossians, and you Greenvillians, 
you Americans that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. God, through Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. This is a, the legal transaction of Calvary. This is the legal transaction that this passage has brought us to, which leads us right to the Lord's table. In the body of his flesh through death, verse 22, that is what has reconciled us that were once alienated and enemies by wicked works. God was alienated to us by nature. We were alienated against God. God legally is reconciled to us. Vitally, he's changed our nature. And the gospel comes, which is called the 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 word of reconciliation. Second Corinthians five, eighteen through twenty one. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's it's as if God did through Christ beseech you by us, be ye reconciled to God. The reconciliation was done on the cross of Calvary. But when we hear the gospel, brethren, we're at peace with God. You can be reconciled in your mind by choosing to believe the gospel and humbling yourself to it that God has paid for your sins through Jesus Christ and we've been put at one again. Amen. Believe it today and be reconciled. Amen. This Lord's table is not a thing of dread. This Lord's table is a thing of excitement and thanksgiving. I fear that there is way too much emphasis made upon what was going to happen to the Corinthians for abusing it. Their abuse of it was terrible. We're not going to have any drunken feast. We're going to remember his death till he comes. I hope you've examined yourself. We're not going to keep half the congregation from getting to it and scarf it all down until we're glutted and drunken. It's a time of celebration. I thought it said giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. What did, that, what did that death accomplish that we're about to remember? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Amen. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You are unblameable. Well, what if he was to think of something? You are unreprovable. But he's holy. And to present you holy in his sight. That is what the death of Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Because the high King of heaven, who created all things and, and all things were created for him, came to earth and died the death of the cross for the redemption of the transgressions of you and me. Right. How do I know? How do I know that I'm one of these that God has made meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of Abel and Seth in heaven? How do I know? Verse 23, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled. It's not the faith grounded and settled in this passage. It's your continuation that is grounded and settled. If ye continue grounded and settled in the faith, because look at what it goes on to say, what it's describing, and be not moved away. That's you. The faith ain't going to move. God's going to keep his faith. The faith was once delivered to the saints. Though men may make additions, deletions, and modifications, the faith, once delivered to the saints, never changes. But we need to be grounded and settled. Because we can't move. Because that is the evidence of a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Right. You, do you want hope? 
that you're in these verses that we've read so far, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, and the hope of the gospel is the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great hope of the gospel. Does the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of His coming move you? Do you love it? Are you grounded in it? Are you settled in it? Are you moved away from it? If you're settled in it, no matter what happens in 2009, it's not going to move you very far. Nothing's going to move you. Because you're grounded and settled in the hope of the gospel. Which puts everything and anything of this life in total oblivion in comparison. We cannot be moved away. Even if persecution were to arise. Even if a depression comes and this congregation is in severe financial trouble. We are not going to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Which is the resurrection of the dead and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know. This is Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 23. That in all things he might have the preeminence. What's missing? What could he, what could, what could God have possibly given the Lord Jesus Christ to make him more preeminent than what we just read? He is before all things. He's the firstborn of every creature. He's the first begotten of the dead. By him were all things created, whether it be things in heaven or things in earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones, might, dominion or power or principalities. He created them all and they were created for him. By his death, he reconciled us to God so that we can be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Let's sing a song about loving him and being thankful for what he's done for us in the cross of Calvary. And having made peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile us to God. Be ye reconciled in your minds. He's reconciled. Let's come to this table knowing that we're reconciled. We're his children. And this is simply a little memorial feast in which we remember with joy and thanksgiving that we have been made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints that are already in light. Gentile dogs that were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers. To the covenants of promise, he's taken us in. Praise the Lord. Even Italians. Amen.